Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Mean Old Line Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to the History of Being Black. I am your hostess with the mostess, Eunice Elliott. And as you know, here on the History of Being Black, we have the opportunity to talk to some of the most dynamic folks in America that are making a difference and encouraging all of us to hashtag be the change. So today is a very special episode. First of all, we have two guests. So we have double the pleasure here and information that we're going to share with you. But also, you know, these names and they've been really uh, being the change and not just their own communities, but in the entire country. So please help me welcome today. We have the uh, president cha- president of the D.C. chapter of the NAACP, Akosua Ali, joining us. And then we also have activist uh, Tamika Mallory joining us. Thank you so much for joining the conversation today on the history of being Black ladies. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So I'm curious, um, you know, when we're trying to uh, activate people to not just listen to thought leaders uh, on the podcast, we're trying to encourage people to galvanize them to get involved. What is it that caused you? And I can start with you, Akasua. What caused you to get involved in activism and pursue your career path? Well, my first awakening when it came to social justice really started in college. I went to school up in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, where they were just chartering an NAACP college chapter there and really just understanding the racial dynamics on a predominantly white campus, being a black girl from D.C., ultimately, the culture shock that came with it, but also the awakening and understanding that we all have a responsibility to advocate and fight for equality and upliftment of our people, not just our own individual advancement. So when I came back to DC, Chocolate City, my hometown, this is really the Mecca, the the home of so much activism, so much change, legislative policy, really the, the shaking and the agitation has to happen right here. So the need for us to do work at home and to really activate that leadership ability to galvanize a next generation of leaders, talented, women like Tamika and many others that are out there leading at the forefront is really how we affect change. And it's just inspiring to be able to work amongst so many amazing and talented, phenomenal leaders that are out here fighting at the forefront. So it keeps me energized because this work is is thankless. It is a struggle. It is hard and it is endless. But there are some gains, but the work sure, is I, I share uh, Akosawa's sentiments that Having powerful women that we meet along the way uh, and just powerful people, people who are encouraging and people who are in this struggle with us, um, it matters. And it definitely keeps me energized every day to be able to look to my right and my left and see so many other people who may be tired, 
They may be stressed and all of that, but we're still going because we know that we have a responsibility to the next generation to solidify our legacy, not the legacy of our parents, of Dr. King, of uh, Congressman Lewis, Dr. Dorothy Height, and so many who've come before us. The question our children will have is what did we do? What did we do with all of, um, with the baton? if you will. And so that for me is, is is certainly one part of what encourages me. But I think the other piece is that, um, you know, it's fight or flight, right? And because we know we're under attack and I see it, I feel it, I'm experiencing in my own life what it is to be raising a 20, or uh, shoot, I'm still raising him, but he doesn't think so. A 22 year old black son. And every day I'm worried. I'm worried about where he goes, what he says, what he does, just everything. And I noticed that when I'm most comfortable is after moments when I can truly say to myself, I went out there and I tried to do something to make the world a better place for him. So that certainly keeps me energized. Um, it's very selfish for me. I tell people that all the time. I'm, I'm trying to protect my own family members. And I recognize that my family can be no better, more successful or stronger or more safe than another family. You know, so we all have a responsibility. And I think that's what keeps us going. Now, both of you use the word energized in your answer. And I think when you are on the front lines, as both of you are, can you talk to me about what do you do to stay energized? And then also, how do you then try to energize others? Because I think all of us have the same responsibility that you have taken on and you have taken the baton. And so many of us that don't necessarily, you know, take that baton and get in that role. Talk to me about the energy required in that it is, uh, as you said, uh, it's, it's a never ending race, right? It's ongoing. How do you maintain yourself? I'm going to say that social justice activists and civil rights activists have a history of dying mm. too soon. And whether it's from being murdered from a bullet or in many cases, the silent killers of stress, stroke, heart attack, cancer have taken out so many leaders mm. over time. So I always encourage myself and encourage my sisters for self-care and to make time for ourselves. And when I reach out to my sisters, usually we're talking about something that we're moving on or some grind or something has happened that we have to mobilize around. But always the first question is, how are you? How have you been? What's going on? Are you good? You know, are you good? That's the first question we always ask each other is, are you good? Do you need anything? What? And sometimes just hearing that and knowing that somebody cares and that you have um, a sister or auntie, a mother, a brother, a husband, a love one to reach out to makes a difference because sometimes you have to vent um, inside in closed spaces, but also let people know openly that it's okay, right? It's okay that you're human. It's okay that you have your limitations. And sometimes you have to learn it's okay to say no, because you can't be everywhere and everything to everybody. So establishing your priorities and putting your energy behind what is a priority, but then also ensuring that you're able to mobilize other people because you yeah, can't be sure, out here alone. You sure can't. You can't do it by yourself. <laughs> you definitely cannot do it alone. When I think about the Make Good Trouble rally that we have coming up on Saturday, August 28th, if I didn't call and ask a coastal and I guess Reverend Mark Thompson asked you first, but I was the next call in line uh, to help and to support us, I don't know how we would do it, right? We There's a lot of I, right. I, I in the world, but I never wanted to be, and I do my best to humble myself not to be the leader that believes that I'm somehow doing all of this on my own 
or that I'm so cool that people just, you know, follow me uh, simply because of who I am. Um, I, you know, maybe there's some of that because I am pretty cool, but that's not the, you know, that's not <laughs> at the heart of the situation. It's because we built coalition and because we understand mm-hmm. that it takes a village literally not just to raise a child, but to sustain one another, to sustain ourselves. Uh, there have been many times on this journey that okay, I, I have felt lost isolated. Um, I have felt, uh, let me see, what's the word? Okay. I felt isolated. I have felt alone, I guess. But it's, it's, it, that's not even really the, the word because okay. I'll, I'll continue you know the you're not alone because there are a lot edit. of people around. So, you know what I'm saying? When, when but you think about, alone, um, you talk about self-care about and, and balance. Room, it's also um, about how are you able to, to do that? Because I would think hear me? being on the front lines, having such an important position in D.C. of all places, as you mentioned, with the NAACP, how do you then not um, take on all of the woes of the world, you know, as, and sacrifice what you need or what your family needs or when you just need to, to say no. How do you check in with yourself to manage yourself in that way? Having an amazing support circle and having an amazing team. So the NAACP is comprised of an executive leadership team. We have over 25 leaders, officers, vice presidents, committee chairs who are all activists throughout the D.C. community. Very active D.C. residents. Some of them are ANC commissioners, but are all leaders in their own right. And our structure, our mechanism within the NAACP as a, as a volunteer-led organization is to train people up to all be leaders within their own right to all help carry the water, to carry their portion of a torch, to really move us forward as a organization, but around a mission and around the causes. So knowing that you're not doing it alone, knowing that you do have a team, but really to speak to your earlier question around mobilizing other people, leading other people, and really awakening a passion and a consciousness in other people so that they know that these are issues and they connect to those issues, right? So when Tamika talked about that, you know, she's in this or it started for even selfish intentions, that she has a 22-year-old son, that she's fighting for him, his right to live as a Black man every day, right? So it's important for us as leaders to be able to connect the community to issues so that they feel it's their own and that they feel connected to it in a personal way. Because we have so many people, even just in D.C., the number of residents that we have that go about their daily life. They go to work, they make sure their families are squared away, they go to bed, they eat, and they may once in a while activate or you know, see something on CNN or MSNBC and discuss it around the kitchen table, but how often they actually get out and activate and protest and speak up, call an elected official, actually mobilize. So our responsibility as leaders is to awaken that consciousness in them so that they are willing to see that I have an invested interest in this, that I have a reason to get out of my home, to get out of my comfort zone and stand and with other people who are standing so to mobilize. So how do you manage that? Do you get frustrated in something being so uh, a time to who you are as a person, also your career, a passion, especially last year uh, after the George Floyd murder. So many people were galvanized. So many people had new awakenings. And then a lot of those people have already said, wow, it's so hard. It takes so much time. And they've gone on to the next thing. A big part of it is knowing your tribe, you know, finding your tribe and sticking with individuals that have your back um, and that you you can uh, count on to keep you moving, right? That's a big part of it because a lot of people, well, in my in my life, over time, 
I've been in situations where I was organizing with folks who didn't even believe in the movement that we were fighting, right? They were just there because it just became a part of your everyday life. You know, we're going to march today. We're going to rally today. But they weren't full of hope. They didn't have that, like, we can win attitude. I work with a group of individuals now who believe that the beloved community and justice Mm -hmm. is actually possible. And that, that does keep us going. Because we know that we're not going to sustain ourselves based upon wins every day, even every month, maybe not even every year. That's not our reality. The reality is that moment by moment, you are going to feel defeated, unfortunately, because the entire system has been designed to oppress our communities and our people specifically. And therefore, you've got to find something else to draw down on. Because if what you come to the movement with is this attitude. I tell my son all the time that young people live in a everything for them because of social media is quick. They got to have it. And as soon as they get involved in something and don't feel it's going their way, they lose steam. They lose enthusiasm. We don't have the ability to do that as leaders of people, organizations, uh, having agency over our own minds, bodies, and and our communities, we don't have the, we can't get frustrated because we don't win. We have to be able to find the wins in other things. And to give you an example of what I mean by that, it is the idea that we're able to build coalitions, that we're able to uh, force elected officials um, and people, uh, candidates like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and others to have to talk to us. They have to come to our communities in order to get our votes. Where we mess up all the time is that we give the votes. And in many ways, uh, the, the, the masses kind of goes back home and forgets about the big struggle that we are left with the bag that is actually more important than the than, 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 than the race or then you know getting people in office. I would declare to you that it doesn't even matter who you elect to office. You put anybody you want in there. If you are willing to do the work and to sacrifice and be unified to fight back against the system, you can almost beat anyone. The issue is that people know where the power lies and they are being very strategic about the things that they want to take away from us, like our voting rights, because they know that that's a place where we unite and where we are able to sustain power. So I don't know if I answered your question, but hopefully, yeah, that frames for you what I think. Well, and that's the thing. I think uh, I think that's the thing it's that a lot absolutely. of people miss out on. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama today, and we had uh, elections today, but so many people won't show up. You know, so the place that I had to stand in the line for for the general election, I walked in and out, and I was like number one ten at two p.m. So it's that thing of yeah, it is it, all of it matters. But it, even after you get someone in office, it's about holding them accountable. It's not just saying okay, well, my person won. It's about okay, is this person fighting the good fight and still in the race? Because I think every Everyone tends to do that, talk the talk during the campaign, make the promises during the campaign. So not only are we responsible for getting people that we think will take those meetings and will come to our communities, but then holding them accountable to what they promised during the campaign. How do you go about doing that 
especially when you when you mention President Biden or Vice President Harris, how do you go about doing that in a way that is most effective? Um, I think sometimes, you know, I think within the first week, you know, it's like, okay, now what? And it's like, how do you go about holding them accountable in a way that actually makes sense? So most importantly, understanding that the work is done between elections and helping we as leaders have a responsibility to impart and awaken that knowledge in our community so that they all have an invested interest in the struggle in between. Right. Everyone knows historically uh, Obama's election. Huge turnout. Blacks were excited to go vote. Yeah, I'm going to vote for my first black president. And then they were proud of it and then they backed off. Right. But regardless, whether it was President Obama or any president since then, there's always a responsibility to hold them accountable. But then also digging down on the local level in between these presidential elections, we have all of these midterm elections which define our country. They have historic historic impacts that we may never really have an opportunity to appropriately roll back from if people completely back off between these elections. The policies that are being put in place as a result of these midterm elections, these redistrictings, voting rights changes, all of these that are happening are having such huge systemic impacts. And unless we help our community to awaken and understand what the impact of it is, we're asleep at the wheel. So activists are only as good as our ability to activate consciousness in our community because the community has to rise up. And the reason why George Floyd's murder had such a profound impact on this nation is because so many people were at home with watching television. They were glued to it, watching the rerun over and over and over, seeing this man beg for his life. That would awaken anyone. But now the country is coming back to life, right? People are getting back into the grind after COVID. They're re-engaging in many different spaces. And once you re-engage and start going back to work and get back into that hustle, you're focused on that hustle. Sometimes you don't turn on MSNBC or CNN, right? Sometimes you don't see how what's happening out there is affecting the food I put on my table, how it's affecting my sons and daughters' lives. They don't understand that. So really ensuring that they they understand that this is a matter of life or death. As Tamika will say, this is a state of emergency for our people in this country and in this nation. And it's time to make good trouble, make necessary trouble, because we got to shake this stuff up or else we're going to fall asleep at the wheel. And this country will lose what gains have been made because policies are rolling things back every day and people will struggle and not know why they do not have food on the table or a pot to piss in. So when you talk about policies rolling back, what could possibly be another motivation behind certain policies outside of racism? <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of the voter policy, what what could be the logic behind these things? Well, you know, as I mentioned, people, we, we're experiencing a backlash, right? We've been going through this backlash since President Obama was elected to office. And if you look back throughout our history, every time we win, whatever winning means, and I put that in quotes because not everyone thinks that we have won, but you get the essence of it. Um, Every time we seemingly win, there is a moment where uh, you see the, the, the backlash of those people who want to see Black, Brown, and marginalized communities Um, not to succeed, right? They don't want us to have justice. And therefore, uh, they push back. And and, and as I said, they're very strategic. 
These are not, and they're well-resourced, right? right? So why, there's so many people that say, well, voting doesn't matter. Well, why do you think that folks are so hell-bent? I mean, they work hard Mm -hmm. on trying to take our voting rights away, on suppressing our right to the ballot box. That is because they recognize that voting is the cornerstone of all the other issues that we are dealing with in our community. Mm -hmm. When I think about it, it's sort of like if I had to use an example, you can't say you're making chicken soup and there's no chicken in the pot, Mm -hmm. right? So so the, the voting rights is the chicken. That is the thing that when you are frustrated in your community and you say you wanna see something change, you go oh, and you change right. those people. You put people in place that are able to do it for you. Then some will say, well, you know, we have people that we voted for and they haven't done enough. Again, back to the original conversation. It's like, did you vote for them and go home or did you vote for them and stay at the table to ensure that you are forcing folks to work for you? I I am um, one who works in the police accountability space. That's what I'm known for. That's where I engage most of my activism, right? And and of course, women's rights, but definitely focused on on police accountability. I recognize Mm -hmm. that part of our problem with getting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed is that we have one party that does not want to help us at all. And we have another party that has too many individuals in it that are not courageous and or just complete turncoats, if you will, who are not really here for our benefit. So what that tells me is that I've got to send more Corey Bushes to office. I have to send more Jamal Bowmans and Ilhan Omars and Ayanna Presley's and Maxine Waters and people and and Mm -hmm. Congressman John Lewis's We've got to find more individuals that we can send to office who will be with our communities and want to protect us from a federal level. And so when you say what policies are being rolled back, almost everything that we have fought for over so many years and that our ancestors died trying to secure for us is in jeopardy right now because our right to be able to determine who will carry the water for us, who will protect us, who will stand for us is being taken away. Our right to live is at risk. Literally, Black people's right to live is at risk in this country right now. When we talk about the policies, and I think to your question initially, how do we get people to understand the importance of this? Because voting rights, eh, what what does that have to do with me? We have to break it down to how that equates to the food on their table, their child's lives, their ability to access health care, their ability to go to an ER and get service, their ability to die at home or on the street because no one is coming to help, right? Your ability to even be able to call the police for help or nah, I'm going to handle this on my own because they need to understand how this applies to them. And it's it's a matter of life and death across this country and how voting rights, redistricting, all of that impacts local policies, local leadership, and that affects local dollars. Many of the false narratives that are in our head, they happen on purpose. People taught us, oh, don't worry about local elections. Just focus on presidential, you know, maybe the mayor. But they never really taught us in school or anywhere. Even our families didn't know enough to teach us 
that every single election, including the school board election, matters all the way up to whomever is going on the federal level. And I think the reason why it's so important that we start teaching that and also understand how dangerous voter suppression is, is because it's not just that your vote will somehow be tampered with or be suppressed when you're going to the next presidential election or the midterm elections. This stuff is going to impact city council. It's going to impact the district attorney races. It's going to, when they suppress your right to vote, that will trickle down into everything happening, as Acosta was said, in your local community. And so if you don't, if you don't believe it, because I, I mean, during the presidential election, I fought especially so many of my brothers who are rightfully angry, frustrated, and they feel unprotected. We went out in the streets and we had big debates as we were trying to mobilize people to vote. And as we were talking, they would say, you know, I believe in local elections, mm-hmm. but I don't care about that. Well, if you believe that local elections matter, then voter suppression is a real issue because the voter ID laws and uh, canceling Saturday voting and reducing the amount of time that you can vote early. All of those things are going to impact your ability to go to the ballot box in every single election. And that brings us to good trouble and making good trouble, make good trouble this Saturday, August 28th in DC, a rally you have organized. Uh, you have a lot of uh, reasons for this rally this, this Saturday, but tell me specifically, what is it that, that you're trying to accomplish with this particular rally on August 28th in DC? Well, you know that August 28th is a, is a, a sacred and historic day. I mean, it is a day in the 1960s where Dr. King and um, uh, A. Philip Randolph and Congressman John Lewis and so many others came together to declare so much of, of the issues that we're still fighting for today. They talked about jobs. They talked about justice. They talked about our rights. And and Dr. King gave that amazing speech that we all know so well. If they don't teach us anything else, they surely teach us that he said, I have a dream. And that happened on August 28th. We go back every year and this year is no different. We want to make sure that people know that just because President Biden and Vice President Harris got elected to office, it doesn't mean we're going home and expecting them to do the work on our behalf. I think we did that to President Obama. And in fact, it was not right. We should have continued to stay in the streets and organize even when he was president. And so we're going back on this August 28th with our friends in many areas, climate justice, uh, our friends around LGBTQIA rights, our friends in the gun violence and police accountability movements, and so many others, of course, the voting rights movement, so that we can declare that the struggle is alive, that the movement is alive, and that we demand, not just from one party or the other, but we demand from all those who are supposed to represent the needs of the people, that they do their jobs and that we are protected, that our communities are made safe from the highest offices in this land. So if we're not in D.C., we always like to ask our listeners to to be um, activated after they hear one of our guests speak. And both of you are so dynamic and passionate about what you do. And and with August 28th, the D.C. rally make good trouble. We always like to ask our listeners to be the change in their own communities. And so if you could offer us hashtag be the change, what can we do? We can't make it to D.C. this weekend. Uh, What can we do, even if it's not on Saturday? What can we do moving our communities forward? Anyone that might be listening today. Yes. So I would charge everyone to activate locally. 
activate, get involved locally. Understanding we can definitely in solidarity stand with this hashtag make good trouble definitely fighting for our voting rights making sure people are activating locally but what i really want to emphasize is that the platform around make good trouble is so important because it's really addressing so many key issues that are affecting our community so tamika touched on already voting rights but also dc statehood understanding the statehood for the residents of the district of mm -hmm. columbia is a civil rights and human rights in justice, right? But beyond even the voting rights in the D.C. statehood aspect, this is also encompassing reversing climate change, raising the minimum wage to $15, canceling student loan debt, removing the filibuster. It is a, it is a very comprehensive platform that Make Good Trouble is standing for. So there are economic justice impacts, climate and environmental justice impacts, policing, criminal justice, and of course, the civic engagement and political action, legislative impacts of this mobilization. So we charge people to activate locally, understand that local votes matter, mobilizations matter, but even beyond direct action taken to the streets and rallies, if you're not ready due to COVID and you don't want to go out and physically understand that grassroots is a movement. There is so much that can be done from your computer by engaging your elected officials. And we're not talking about hashtags on social media. I want to be very clear that engaging elected officials directly, understanding that your ability to mobilize citizens, residents within your community to speak up and speak to their elected officials, whether it's email, via letters, via phone calls, flooding offices with concerns and raising issues is a legitimate grassroots movement. Raise your issues, raise your voice, understand your power because your power has an impact. And also for people who you mentioned uh, COVID and there are some folks who are home and unfortunately unable to come to be in D.C. with us, uh, they can go to MakeGoodTroubleRally.com for more information about the live from Lincoln Memorial stream. So they should just keep watching, keep checking out the link. Go to Good Trouble DC on Instagram. Stick with us. And before the end of the week, you'll have information about how you can stream in live. I really appreciate this conversation, uh, probably more than you'll ever know. I know both of you are extremely busy changing the world. So to take this time to talk to us here at the History of Being Black, I feel very honored and privileged. And I appreciate and send you all of my love and energy. I'm energized just listening to you talk and then galvanized to what I can do right here. And I can continue to hashtag be the change as well. So Akosua Ali, Tamika Mallory, thank you so much for joining us on the History of Being Black. Hopefully we can reach out to you again, become a friend of the program. I wish you the absolute best this August 28th in D.C. And as you mentioned, the website is MakeGoodTroubleRally.com. Anyone listening can go to the website, uh, get involved, and then also follow the live link for the rally uh, this Saturday, August 28th in D.C. Thank you so much for all the work you do. And please stay safe and take care. Until next time, we'll see you guys on The History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott, edited by Ken Johnson, executive producers Ken Johnson. Find The History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean Old Lion production.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.